Friends, it's good to be in God's presence with you. Uh, I am excited about the second week in this series, The Hero and the Mission. I was shocked to learn some of the all-time baddest movie villains have considerably minor parts or the, the time they're on screen is way smaller than, than I would have guessed. Darth Vader, only on screen in, in the first Star Wars movie for eight minutes and six seconds. Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for portraying Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Probably not a reference you thought you might hear at church. <laughs> he won a Best Actor award for being on screen 16 minutes. That blows my mind. This sermon's like 23. I, I, 16 minutes, that's, that's, that's a lot of work and not a lot of time. Ursula, only in The Little Mermaid, 13 minutes and 10 seconds. <laughs> Got some Ursula fans, okay. Hella in Ragnarok for only 12 minutes and 6 seconds. Uh, where are my Hamilton fans at? Uh, Sarah and I had to watch it with the captions on. That's, that's where we are in life. Uh, King George only is, is singing songs for 7 minutes, but they are effective, aren't they? And those of us of a certain generation will remember the 1979 sci-fi film Alien, where, where the character haunted Sigourney Weaver the whole time, but was only on screen for less than four minutes. Villains can have a disproportional effect on any story, even if they aren't featured nearly as much as the hero. Now, a recent trend in entertainment actually reverses that where the villains are kind of the protagonists, where they're on screen most of the time. This, these stories featuring the anti-hero. Maybe you've seen some of these stories as well, uh, where we've got the villain that's also really like the protagonist. Shows like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, or movies like Cruella or Despicable Me. They're counterintuitive because the whole point is to kind of root for the villain. And now why have these anti-hero stories been so popular? Maybe it's because we kind of identify with the villain more than we'd like to admit. And we recognize that none of us are totally heroic. In this series, The Hero and the Mission, we're looking at key characters that are almost universal in every story. The hero, the villain, the victim, and the guide. This is the framework Donald Miller lays out in his book, Hero on a Mission. And he says that these characters exist in stories because they exist in us. The victim is the character who feels they have no way out. The villain is the character who makes others feel small. The hero is the character who faces their challenges and transform. The guide is the character who helps the hero. And what separates most of the time heroes from villains is their motivation. Heroes pursue something beyond themselves, something greater than themselves, something selfless. Villains pursue something selfish, usually their own power and, and control or manipulation at the expense of others. Now, sometimes who we define as heroes or villains depends on our perspective, right? We celebrate the heroes of the American Revolution every 4th of July. They were not seen as such in England, right? So my aim is for us to look inward and admit that we each have a villainous streak. And what I hope we'll discover today as we study God's word together is that everyone is one choice away from being a villain to someone. Hmm. Now, this ain't a literature class or a screenwriting seminar. This is a sermon. So we're going to look at the scriptures together. 
we're going to use Miller's kind of fourfold framework of primary characters, and we're going to use that, but looking at it through the lens of the story of Moses. Last week, we looked at Moses' origins as a Hebrew child who was raised in Egypt as, as an Egyptian. He was born into slavery, but then became Pharaoh's daughter's son when she drew him out of the water. And as he grew into an adult, he murdered an Egyptian in a rage, and then he fled for the country of Midian. So Moses has become a nomad, a shepherd, a husband, and a father. Now we're going to look at God's call on Moses' life next week when God calls Moses to go confront Pharaoh to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery. But today we're going to see that in action. We're going to look at the call from God next week, but actually this week focus in on Moses confronting Pharaoh as the villain. So our hero Moses is confronting one of the most powerful people on the planet, Pharaoh, which was Egyptian for great house. And that became what they referred to their king as, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the Egyptian king. So our scripture is going to begin in Exodus 5. And Exodus is the story of the people of Israel, the Hebrews exit from slavery in Egypt. We'll start with verse 1 of chapter 5, which our third graders would be able to locate. (laughs) Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Afterwards, what does that mean in the first verse? After what? Moses and Aaron, that's his brother, they've assembled all the people of Israel and and are advertising that God has called them to lead the Israelites out of slavery. Now we know that Moses was born and raised under a different Pharaoh because earlier in Exodus we read that that Pharaoh passed away. So we don't have any kind of indication whether this Pharaoh is going to recognize or somehow know Moses or not. But Moses and Aaron make the famous demand on God's behalf, let my people go. Pharaoh responds with the powerful world leader version of basically saying, you're not the boss of me. This is what Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So we know from earlier in Exodus in chapter 1, that the Israelite slaves built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Their labor was intense. And Pharaoh's desire, his motivation, is to rule the Israelites to build up his kingdom. So he has no interest in releasing his slave labor. Upton Sinclair famously said, It is difficult to get someone to understand something when their salary depends on their not understanding it. I'm going to let that one linger for a moment. So Pharaoh's not going to be easily convinced, especially with an appeal to some foreign god that means nothing to him. Then Moses and Aaron said, this is verse 3 through 5, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. So Pharaoh's self-interests are being challenged, and his reaction is telling. Moses and Aaron, they're not going to be received as heroes, because in their efforts to liberate the Israelites, all they do initially is make life worse by, by, by stirring Pharaoh's villainous anger. 
These are verses 6 through 9. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. This is how Pharaoh responds to the plea of let my people go. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce their quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So Pharaoh is going to withhold elements that are crucial to producing bricks, but then still require the same number of bricks be made. That's, that, that's layers of evil. This is, this is a, a real villain move. It could, if it, just when you thought it couldn't get much worse, it could get worse. Straw is a bonding agent with clay in forming bricks. They look a little something like this. Without it, or with low-quality kind of scraps or stubble that the Israelites could gather, the bricks would not form as easily, so they would be harder to make. And then once they were made and formed, they were more likely to fall apart. And so keeping up with the same quota would be impossible. In Pharaoh's mind, if the Israelites have enough time to assemble and practice their own worship, then they've got too much time. So Pharaoh deploys his men to eliminate this distraction and this challenge to his authority. And the people are not pleased with Moses and Aaron because they've made their incredibly difficult existence even harder. This is what the people say to Moses and Aaron in verse 21. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so Moses goes back to God, who put him up to all this in the first place, and says, why, Lord, have you brought me trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. God responds and promises Moses that he will be faithful and remember his people. At the beginning of chapter 6, we read, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, God says. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. And because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now over the course of four chapters, starting in chapter 7, there's kind of this cycle that happens. Moses appeals to Pharaoh. Pharaoh refuses even as a series of plagues escalates. A series of plagues on Egypt. It starts with the water turning to blood. And then there's, there's all these catastrophes with nature. Livestock dies. Uh, flies and, and locusts consume the land. People break out in boils. The sun is blotted out. And finally, Egyptian children die. So there's more at stake and more going on in Exodus than, than we have time to describe. An entire race, untold thousands of people, enslaved in increasingly cruel conditions. Pharaoh is what I would call a high-stakes villain. Right? This, this, is, this is just pure evil. But I want to I wanna draw a spectrum for us. I want us to take a, a bit of a breath here. Because none of us are employing slave labor or suffering plagues. And so if Pharaoh is on one end of the spectrum of villains, then, then I, I did some research to find out what kind of things are on the other end. I wanted to find out what are some more low-stakes villains that we encounter. And so I took to Facebook that source of wisdom 
that is also the bane of our existence. And I asked people on Facebook, okay, who are some low-stakes villains? Some of those folks for me are the people in the back of the plane that the second the plane lands, like, rush up to the front, like their time is more important than ours, or they forgot to, to, rest, to, to reserve the A boarding on Southwest. It's not my fault, man, okay? So th that, that kind of stuff just drives me nuts. And, and what I found is lots of little things drive a lot of people nuts. Uh, <laughs> some of these responses were hilarious. My buddy Kurt, he said that low-stakes villains to him are people that eat Doritos and Cheetos and then think it's cool to touch his board games. Very particular about his board games. Uh, my, it's true, that's right. Uh, my friend Jill said the people who are on their phones at a green light and, and they're texting and then they, you miss the light because they weren't on, on their game paying attention, right? We all understand that if you are the first in line at a stoplight, you have a sacred duty. You can let nothing distract you. People are counting on you. We know that. So these, these were some examples of low-stakes villains. They were hilarious. This thing, it, it was so funny to watch Roland. There were over 200 comments. And so this is what I learned, uh, that we, not, we, we, we may not behave on, on the scale of Pharaoh, right? But everyone is one choice away from being a villain to someone. Now, this, this little Facebook thread had a pronounced effect on me because they were all ringing in my ears as I went to the grocery store and, and carefully replaced an item I was putting back with the other items, not randomly on some other shelf. That was somebody's uh, drove them nuts. I was in the car rider line at, at the school with my kids, and I was, I was on point. I was punctual, kept it moving. I, like, all these were ringing in my ears. So, so this kind of haunted me this week because we've got a lot of things that, that make us think people are villains. And so my takeaway from all the comments is that the Internet is a great place for airing minor grievances. <laughs> it really brought people together, okay? And my second takeaway was that we really act like villains in our cars. Get on there and read those. About half of them have to deal with automobiles. I think, that's, I think there's something there. Is it because of the anonymity? You're, you we're shielded by a fiberglass or steel frame, whatever they're made out of? Uh, there's something there. But for me, the biggest takeaway was that basically all of these low-stakes villain behaviors involved prioritizing ourselves with indifference to others at best or maybe even prioritizing ourselves at the expense of others. That was the common thread in all of them. And so this is one way that we can identify a villain, either in someone else or in ourselves, our motivation. What is it that a character wants? That'll determine whether they're a hero or a villain. Are they selfish or selfless? And I think this is what makes some people particularly villainous because they are in a role that should be selfless but use their power for their own evil desires. This is why corruption amongst any public servant, including pastors, is so evil. Because the role carries with it a certain amount of grace or expectation that you're going to use your influence for the good of others, for the sake of others. And when people reverse that and only use it for themselves, it's especially evil. Now, sometimes we can't see people's motives until it's too late. Sometimes we might not even know our own. 
And, and, and so maybe we don't even know our own motivations sometimes. We certainly don't know those of others. Another way we can identify a villain is how do they react when they're opposed? Andy Stanley is a pastor uh, in Atlanta, and he said, while our actions don't always tell the whole story, our reactions most certainly do. And a long time ago, I heard someone describe the difference between reacting and responding. And that little distinction has had a huge effect on my life. Almost without exception, I go into villain mode if I'm offering someone a raw reaction rather than a thoughtful response. Am I alone in that? I didn't think so. I got a buddy, his name's Mitch, and he has this habit of, <laughs> he has this habit, I'm learning from him because if he's going to write maybe an email with some sensitive, that, that needs a response, he actually won't per, put the person's name in the subject yet. He won't actually type a, an email address in the top until he writes the whole thing and reads it through. That way he can't just fire it off. That would have saved me some heartache if I had that practice and offered a thoughtful response rather than a raw emotive reaction. So how can we identify a villain? What is their reaction when they're opposed? When do we know that we're being the villain? What is our reaction when we're opposed? What do we do when we're confronted? Dr. Henry Cloud is an expert on psychology and leadership. He has a model that we can locate ourselves on. He describes the wise person, the foolish person, and the evil person. The wise, the foolish, and the evil. And the difference between them, you can sort out when they're confronted with the truth. When confronted with the truth, the wise person desires it. They accept the truth and they're grateful to be corrected because their motivations are good. The wise person is willing to receive correction and transform. Remember, that's the mark of a hero, someone who faces their challenges, maybe even faces their criticism and transforms. And so the wise person desires the truth when they're confronted with it. When confronted with the truth, the foolish person deflects it. They deflect it. Instead of accepting the truth, the foolish person will deflect and blame and make excuses. Or maybe offer one of these apologies. I'm sorry you feel that way. Hmm. That's a foolish thing to say. Now, the foolish person may come around and accept the truth eventually, but their immediate reaction to the truth is they deflect it. Not my fault. Now, the evil person, when confronted with the truth, they disregard it. What did Pharaoh do? He doubled down. He not only didn't release the Israelites from slavery, he increased their burden. The evil person disregards the truth. There's no reasoning with an evil person because they reject any truth that opposes their selfish desires. These are the people who aren't sorry that they did X, Y, or Z. They are sorry that they got caught big difference. They're not sorry they did it. They're sorry they got caught. And the tough part is each of us have all played these three roles in one scenario or another. Everyone is one choice away from being a villain to someone. 
And just like the alien was only on screen for three minutes, 45 seconds, we can have a disproportional villainous effect in someone's life if we're not careful. Everyone is one choice away from being a villain to someone. And so whether we play the villain or want to be more like our hero, it depends on our motives. What is it that we want? And if we want the villain to decrease, and if we want our likeness to our hero Jesus to increase, then I would propose we can make a habit of asking ourselves two questions. When you encounter a scenario, especially one that you've got some choices as to how you could make your next move, two questions, two key questions. What's my motivation here? And am I responding or reacting? Two great ways to test your sort of inner self. What's my motivation? And then pausing before you speak or act, and am I responding or reacting? In this way, we're testing our own motives and sifting our potential choices. Heroes and villains, good versus evil. Reality is it's not always that simple. Sometimes that battle of good and evil is, is being waged within. It's the battle of our sinful nature. The Bible describes this as the desires of the flesh being put to death and giving way to the desires of the spirit that God provides and lives in us. We read this in Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. So friends, if we want to be more heroic, if we want to be more like our hero Jesus, if we want to oppose the villain, not be the villain, then let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, for the amazing blessing of, of seeing children make progress in their faith. And to remember from your word the evil that Pharaoh acted upon your people and the capacity that we all have to be a villain, to act in our own self-interest, to use whatever power and influence we have, not for the sake of others, but for ourselves. God, help us to live according to your spirit and to look within and to test our motivations and our actions before you so that we can be your witnesses. So that we can play a positive role in the lives of our families, of our neighbors, of our coworkers, of our community of faith here at church. And here in Kearney and around Kansas City, wherever we work, that we would bring a desire to be obedient to your spirit that lives within us and to look for opportunities that focus on the good of others. God, it's only by your spirit that we can resist the villainous instinct to react, to lash out, to take vengeance, to be selfish, to hurt others, 
to manipulate others. We lay all these desires before you and ask that you give us the courage to lay our hearts before you and that we would pause and allow you to guide our choices, our words, our thoughts, and our motivations. God, it's so easy and so tempting to play the villain in ways large and small. Help us to follow our hero, Jesus. Amen.